Welcome to this week's episode of Game Devs Quest, your once weekly podcast following two game dev scrubs into game devdom. If we can do it, you can too. I'm Rhett. Hey guys, I'm Taylor. And over here in the corner, quiet as a church mouse, uh, we're joined with a special guest. None of y'all have uh, met him. He's not uh, a regular on the Discord or in our Twitter sphere. Uh, go ahead and say what's up. Oh, hey, Rhett, Taylor. Good to be here. I'm Nick. Uh, very excited to be part of the the talk today. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about something that uh, I despise and yet I'm obsessed with uh, VR <laughs> and where VR is going, especially in these crazy times. Nice. Yeah, that's really crazy. And, w- and what's kind of fun about it is, is um, in a in a very minor way, like VR is kind of like where. Not exactly. It's kind of like where those podcasts like really gain traction because uh, a, a friend of mine was running a VR studio. Uh, a VR arcade, I guess is a better word, just to allow people to come up and play games and things like that. And I'd never played VR before, and, I, and Taylor hadn't either. And so we kind of did like a before and after type snapshot podcast, like looking at this and talking with the person that was um, running the arcade about like <clears throat> different applications for VR and AR and where we see it going in the future and stuff. So this is like kind of a fun, I don't know, maybe extension of that idea. Yeah, we um, haven't talked about it in like three years either, so... Yeah, for sure. Well, um, the conversation around it is definitely going to change. I mean, the VR as a technology isn't going anywhere. Uh, it's now more accessible than ever. Uh, and it's just so weird that right when it was reaching this point, this tipping point where you were about to get a VR headset into people's homes, COVID hit, and now uh, you're... like. I don't know if we want to just launch right into it or if you want to shoot the shit a little bit more, but I got I got so much to say, man. I am <laughs> <laughs> this has been let's, bubbling let's up inside me for so long and I have had you. no good outlets, so I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> You're the captain, man. So we can we can like shoot the shit if we make it through and there's time to spare, then we could shoot the shit, or we could take a breather in the middle and shoot the shit. Like this has no structure. Take us where you will. Alright, well yeah, let's just let's it. just take it take it out and see where it goes. So um I just finished my master's degree and I was studying applications of AR and VR for augmenting real space. Uh, like I was saying, VR is in this, was before COVID in this, um, this like nascent stage where it was right about to spill over into some kind of really interesting practicality for the first little while of its, of its life. And I'm not talking about like the seventies and eighties when they were first prototyping. I'm talking about, you know, the last five years or so VR was basically a toy and please challenge me if you disagree with me, but my beef with VR and why I kind of first got into it was because I was so critical of it. Um, I was, I was really impressed by it, but it still wasn't good for anything, right? The last five years, what's what's the best VR experience you've you've played? Um, uh, probably Half Life, Alex. Oh, you've played that? Yeah, Jeff has it. I haven't played it in a long time, but it was, I don't know, some little arcade type game where the you, lab, 
it might have been in the where lab. You shoot yeah, the where you shoot the bow. Yeah, that one's Yeah, the fun. lab. Yeah, the lab. So the lab is a great example of this. It's like a free um, demo that's shipped with uh, Vive as a way of sort of showing off what VR could do. But aside from Half-Life Alex, which I would argue would actually play better as just like an FPS, and it's sort of a middling FPS at that if you take away the, the VR elements, um, there's not a ton out there that actually makes good use of the technology in a way that's more than a toy. Like the lab is cool, but it's a toy. You play it for 20 minutes, you get it, and you're not going to come back to it hour after hour. And that's what the games industry wants, right? They want to sell you a subscription. They want to sell you something that you're going to come back to and invest your time and money in uh, forever. They're selling experiences, right? They're not selling products anymore. They want to sell a lifestyle. And that's fine. That's where all product design is going. But uh, VR couldn't figure it out. Like, my... Of all the VR stuff I've played, uh, game-wise, I think the best one was uh, Super Hot VR, because yeah, that's a great one. Too. Yeah, that's good too. It, it used the technology in a way that really could only exist on on VR. And because of the way Superhot is designed, it uh, doesn't invite you to look for the cracks. In almost every VR experience, um, the first thing I do, and I, I know I'm not alone in this, is I try to break it. I try to figure out what I'm allowed to do because VR... The implication of VR is like, I'm here, I'm in this other world, I can do whatever I want, I can do anything. And almost immediately you hit walls because you can't design for anything, for everything in a, in a VR space. Um, I'm thinking particularly of, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a Guy Ritchie movie. Uh, I think it's on PSVR, um, the, the Heist or something like that. Uh, it's basically a, an interactive film. Um, there's a few cool things you can do, like there's a guy talking in your face and you can smoke a cigar and blow the cigar in his face, but... You know, simple things where you're like, oh, I'm holding this cigar. This guy's up in my face. What happens if I touch his face with a cigar? Well, nothing. It just clips into him. Like, they they didn't design for that. And that's <laughs> incredibly immersion-breaking. Um, what I'm getting at here is that VR has been a toy, and no one has really figured out what to do with it until just recently when they started applying it to, like site-specific interventions, to things that make use of the space or things that are, like... Um, I'm thinking of in uh, like in health conventions, for example, there often have big booths of crazy VR experiences where you'll like drive through someone's uh, like lymphatic system and shoot cancer and VR stuff like that. Like it's it's a spectacle. It's a show. It's something that uh, it's cool to watch people do because it's kind of a performance when you're when person is in VR um, and it's novel. And as the novelty wears off, I think we were going to get to this place where, like, well, what are we going to do with VR? And now, right again, right before COVID, we were looking at VR as education. A lot of uh, – in here in Toronto, uh, there's a, a company called Dark Slope that was doing VR and AR development uh, games. And they've just pivoted to education because uh, it looks like there's not a ton that VR can actually do as far as, as, uh, as gaming. But they're saying that education, simulation is where it's at. Um, yeah, see, and this is this is all pretty interesting, and I want to interject a couple things. And it's and, and I'm wondering, at least for me, when you're describing the way that a person who wants to play a game in VR would test the limits of of what they can do, that to me seems like a pretty natural way that video game players would go about 
that, I mean, that's the first thing anybody does when they pick up a game is Absolutely. they're kind of reverse engineering it, right? Absolutely. Um, you have to learn the so rules. So that seems... Right. And VR, <laughs> by the way it's been designed, sort of expects you to be passive. Like some of the, the best VR yeah. experiences out there have been... Uh, either engaging with the technology very specifically, like super hot, or engaging with the space. There was a I'm gonna look up the name of it because it's a really, really interesting and valuable. Um, hang on a second, I'm gonna type and give me some dead air while I find the name of this thing because it was really, really good. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Beatabon. So the best VR experiences have either engaged with the technology or engaged with the space. Have been like overlaying. Um, the affordances of VR on the actual space that it's located in and making meaning from that. And those ones tend to be more uh, filmic, more passive and more just about, well, you can now be surrounded by something. I'm thinking in particular of this, this film, uh, VR film called uh, Bidabon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Bidabon first light. Um, that is a piece of uh, indigenous futurism that was uh, located here in Toronto last summer um, and they set it in the middle of Nathan Phillips Square, which, if you don't know, is a big central uh, hub space in Toronto. It's right outside City Hall. The iconic Toronto sign is there. And it was an installation. So you'd walk into a tent and they had the VR thing and you'd put it on and you were standing in the exact same space you were in real life but in this future where everything has changed and become overgrown. And there's this incredible, oh, uncanny cool. experience of being like, oh, I just saw this. I'm here still, but I'm also there. Uh, and that's what VR has been able to do very, very well. But you can't really turn that into a commodity, right? It's a great expressive tool, but it hasn't been all that great for, uh, for like, uh, products, for, for games. Um, right. Yeah. Well, and that kind of brings me to my next thing, and I, and I have no like zero disagreements with anything you're saying. I find it really fascinating, but like VR is like still kind of like an emerging technology in a way, right? Like you know, the uh, when I went to CES, it was pretty. You know, one of my favorite things was going around to all of the different sort of VR companies, uh, booths, and like seeing what kind of technology they're trying to push. And you know, there's still so many kind of frontiers on VR technology that haven't been fully developed yet. Like one one company was really trying to perfect eye tracking. Another company was focusing on like haptic feedback, and another was focusing on, um, you know, better tracking. Um, so you know, whatever and whatever else. Go ahead. It, like I, like I said, the technology is not going anywhere. But I ask you this: Will any of that ever give you a better input than? keyboard and mouse and like the answer the answer is we don't know obviously but i think it's going to take a long time to get there and i think the adoption is going to be slow um yeah i know i'm i'm and that's the like thing a it's like big, I, sorry go ahead no no you're fine this is really interesting <laughs> to me actually because see all we all we do is to vr's horn really so it's really interesting to like hear somebody who you know obviously has a respect for it but is aware of like I, the sort of what yeah, I was going to say one of the reasons I think we toot its horn is because we have such limited um, exposure exposure to it. To it. Yeah. And for me, I honestly have not thought about VR in quite a while. You know, right. I, I as soon as I heard that um, the Oculus Quest came out, you don't need uh, to hook it up. Yeah, to it's a like PC. a standalone. It's like standalone. I was pretty excited about that, and then 
you know, I thought about it for like a week or two and then it, you know, I haven't thought about it since. And I think part of that is exactly what Nick's saying with just like the sort of arcade, like toy nature of the experiences we have, which are very shallow. It's like you play it the first couple times and your mind is like, is blown, you know, but then that sort of wears off and the the experience itself is not very deep. Exactly. Um, What's going to keep you coming back? What's going to keep you putting on that headset? Right. Well, and and I was thinking about another VR experience I had when I was at CES, and I was like, well, that was pretty amazing, but it was only made better by, I guess, you know, the peripherals, for lack of a better term. And essentially, they created this, like, driving simulator uh, that was, like, VR. And because one of the big things that was missing for me, like, when trying to play, like, Project Cars or something in VR was, like, you don't feel anything, and I would get immensely motion sick and, like, barf. And (laughs) And this, they created this, like, you know, I guess... I don't know if haptic feedback is the right word, but the, this like this seat that would turn and kind of like apply like a little bit of pressure to you in such a way so that it felt as though you were like turning and things like this. Um, I was going to say that was probably like one of the better VR experiences considering that like driving in VR before would just like destroy me. Um, and this added that sort of feedback that you were missing that was, like, really immersive. But again, like, nobody's going to have already the barrier of entry to VR is, like, pretty high. No one's going to have this, like, seat that, like, pivots and moves around. And then it's like, is that VR or is that just, like, a simulator, you know, <laughs> like, at that point? Um, yeah, it reminds me of, like, uh, there's this small theme park in Oregon uh, called Bullwinkles. <laughs> And <laughs> I don't know if you ever went on this ride at Bullwinkles, but it's like this, like, uh, spaceship-looking thing, and you like go in it. You can sit two people, and you yeah. just kind of sit in front of this big screen, and then it like moves you around, and you yeah. kind of get that same feeling. It, I don't know. It just seems kind of cheap. one-dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it's, that it's, me of. it's the magic. It's the like you come in, and it's this new thing that uses your senses and your body in a way that you're not used to. But what happens when you do get used to it? Would you go back and ride that ride again at Bullwinkles? Right. How many times no. would you want to do that? Or the uh, the driving simulator, you know, like, it's cool to go to CES. Yeah, I get bored of that pretty quick. Exactly, but you wouldn't spend $18,000 on that rig and bring it into your apartment. Um, and, like, now that we're in this COVID crisis, what does that mean for these kind of installations? Like, I was... I, this brings me back to kind of where I was going, which is that VR was coming into its own as a... Um, as an evocative experiential tool more so than a gaming platform because of its abilities to do these kind of experiences, novel, unique, kind of one-time things that you can deploy like this for relatively low cost, uh, but a big... Uh, emotional impact to these people coming to see it. But now that we're in COVID, we're not going to be sharing headsets anymore. We're not going to want to be sitting in a sweaty driving chair in the middle of a CES show floor. So, uh, I mean, I have my theories, but what do you, like I, VR technology is not going anywhere. So yeah, it's going to be around, but what does it mean for the medium now that we have to adapt to this, uh, this pandemic that may not go away for a decade? Well, yeah, I don't think, and and that's exactly what I was thinking of when we were talking about. It. It was like that was one of my least favorite aspects of like going to the arcade was, yeah, you know, it, it was above a bar first of all, so you know you're getting a, a certain type of person coming up, and then people are playing games, and 
and Jeff, bless his heart, had like all of these like replaceable pads and things like that, and he would swap them out and like disinfect them heavily and stuff before putting them on the next person. But like, man, the amount of like sweat and stuff that was getting yeah. on these headsets was like. So I don't know, but to, see, to me, I've always wondered about the limitations of VR as well. And then you throw in this this kink, the COVID kink, and and I really don't know where I see it going. And that, but to me, the future obviously lies with like augmented reality that's exactly what i was Um, gonna say that was my next point so thank you you scooped me good there (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm for (laughs) yeah no i i totally agree i think that vr as we know it is going to shift and adapt to uh an augmented reality uh context and i think it's going to become more and more mobile oriented we all have mobile devices anyway uh and those the games on mobile are easy like that that's the real gaming revolution of the last decade is the is mobile gaming. So I think that uh, once we get to a point where we can have cheap peripherals that will give us practical six degree of freedom VR on our uh, on our mobiles, that's when we're going to see actual VR adaptation. And I think that, like you said, AR is going to be uh, where it's at because you can engage uh, the real space in an interesting way. Pokemon Go was so uh, successful because it turned uh, the the space around you into a game board and it had you engage with with like public space in a new interesting way so once we have uh cheap and simple ar uh i think that we're going to see a lot more interesting uh game and experiential uh things going out into the world but it's a question of like because i'm um, you know who's doing that research right google are, are you familiar with google cardboard i'm sure you are yeah. 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 So they Google stopped production on Google Cardboard. You can still get them, but they don't support it anymore. Um so it's going to be in the hands of other of like small devs to figure out what what that's going to be. I'm sure people are working on it. I think Mozilla has a mobile um thing they're working on and I know there's a startup uh here in town that I don't want to give too much away, but they're working on um essentially a Google Cardboard with a with a controller uh plug-in so mm-hmm. it's coming oh, but yeah but again what they're they're focused on training on simulation uh so you know what kind of experiences can we make with them is is my question so this this leads me to kind of my actual ethos um i mentioned Tourette before uh we started that i'm i'm giving a talk at the international symposium of electronic art in a couple of months on uh, this thing called immersion that uh, won't leave my brain. Um, you guys are, you've heard the term immersion, immersive experience, right? Oh, oh yeah. 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 So I ask you, what what does it mean? What's an immersive experience? Uh, it's like getting lost in the medium that you're consuming and, you know, being able to sort of leave your own reality behind. Um you know, and fully experiencing what this new medium has to offer. So I actually really like that definition. I was hoping to get start an argument because uh, <laughs> nobody can really agree. Like the I was <laughs> I was doing a master's, um, and I started my proposal was like I want to research this this thing called immersion. And everybody I spoke to said, "Don't do that because there's no such thing." There's presence and there's liveness and there's uh, incorporation and there's uh, like there's all kinds of like different 
theories that are being tossed around by game theorists and uh, experiential theorists, but nobody agrees on a definition of immersion. And I say, if that's so, how come the term doesn't go away? How come we are surrounded by marketing, by experiences that say they're immersive? And how come there's a market for it? How come people crave immersive experiences? And it's not just in gaming. All over product design, yeah. all over products, like this is what Movies. people are selling now. Movies are being pitched as immersive, but not just that, like um, brands are shifting in instead of products, brands are making lifestyles. Brands are asking, uh, they're saying like, if you buy this product, you know, your life will change because you can become immersed in this lifestyle. You know, Instagram is an immersive experience. Even QAnon, I would argue, <laughs> is so effective because... It's it's like an ARG. QAnon hits yeah, all the is. same buttons as an ARG because you get to dig through, find the clues, exactly find the clues, uh, believe that another world is real, and here's the kicker: there's a community supporting that belief. So, yeah. my talk that I'm giving, and I'm sort of testing on you guys right now, is an argument <laughs> that there is a field of immersive design that's emerging, and there is a way to design for that kind of immersion that you were talking about, where you let yourself believe that there are other rules that govern reality and that you can leave behind for a little while the sort of mundanity of the world and let the magic of this immersive experience overtake you. And this is where VR falls short. Uh, just let's let's tie it all back to the very first thing I said. VR falls short because right away you f- see the cracks. The first thing that happens when you put on any VR uh, experience, when you start any game or uh, watch a VR film, is you encounter things you can't do. And that's deeply immersion-breaking, right? Now, um, I would, oh, go, I would go, argue in a sense, though, like... Well, go ahead. If, if I'm breaking your flow here, you, I'll, I can make no, this No, no, I, I, I'd much prefer to have a conversation, otherwise I'll just go <laughs> off on a crazy this, tangent. This brings up an interesting point because, you know, like I said, I see the cracks... But that doesn't necessarily ruin, and maybe maybe I'm conflating some ideas here. That doesn't necessarily break the immersion for me, because to me, like when I'm playing the lab and I'm shooting arrows at little like stick men trying to break down my gate, like what feels immersive to me is the action of like drawing an arrow and pulling the bow back and letting it go and like tracking the arc of it and all of these types of things of course i know that stick figure men are real i know that i don't have a castle to defend you know and and it looks like dog crap too let's just put that out there (laughs) um you know so it's like i know that i'm in a game but to me it's like it's the it's the range of motion and like the and the motion tracking and and the and that type of thing that I feel like makes the immersion for me in it. And, and, and I think I am kind of conflating because it's, it's like, obviously, I know I'm in a game. So I'm obviously not immersed in it, I guess. So here's, but I'm immersed in it. But, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, I, I guess I'm, like, immersed in it as far as, like, I know what I've bought into. Like, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. <laughs> well, all right. Here's where it's going to get technical. So uh, what I would argue you're experiencing there is engrossment. And there's two kinds of engrossment. There's engrossment by form, which is uh, 
what you're talking about, where you're sort of surrounded by things that take your attention and your body does things and you get uh, involved in those. And then there's engrossment by, engrossment by transportation. Sorry, I got them backwards. Engrossment by transportation is when you feel like you're in another place. Your body is actually physically uh, somewhere and uh, you're engrossed in that action and that locale. And then there's engrossment by form, which is when you get involved in a task. Um Oh. So good examples of engrossment by form, but not engrossment by transportation is like doing a crossword puzzle where you sort of lose track of time. Um, but because like this task is so interesting See. and takes your attention. And then engrossment by transportation happens in a film or in, in a VR experience like this where you are no longer in your physical location, but you're somewhere else. Um, and then when you those things come together, and I'm, I'm borrowing from a few other theorists here. This term is from uh, Josephine Machon, who's a... Uh, a theater theorist, but when both of those things come together, she calls that total immersion. And I argue that there's another step that needs to be taken to get to the kind of immersion that Taylor defined. And that I agree is there because there's like, there's a magic to immersion that isn't just engrossment, right? Like you've, I don't know. Sorry, go, go ahead. I was going to say like what the way that you're kind of describing immersion in a way, and maybe, maybe again, I'm kind of describing engrossment here, but have you ever heard of the, 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 the term, uh, deep work yes yes i have um yeah me and taylor talk about deep work all the time and like flow state and things like that and it feels like immersion is sort of almost it's like own version of flow state maybe absolutely they're very closely related um i would argue that flow state is synonymous with the total immersion that i was talking about but uh there's another step uh that i think is missing from a lot of experiences that people call immersive um I don't know if you guys are are active on Tumblr, but you're aware that there's like huge fandoms for games like Dragon Age and Mass Effect, where people really deeply inhabit these worlds and they really attach themselves to these characters. Um, I would argue that those people are experiencing true immersion. This 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 really magical, indefinable thing where you really, maybe not really truly, but you like you get so much energy and excitement and joy from allowing yourself to completely leave behind the real world and become part of this other one. And this happens uh, not just in on like Tumblr after the fact with, with people who are into Dragon Age, but uh, it happens in MMOs to a degree. Uh, I think it's a lot of it, um, immersive theater is very good at doing this. Theme parks are very good at doing this, but the ingredient that's missing uh, is community. Uh, if you have a community to who all agree and support uh, this idea that you are living in a fiction, that fiction, that idea becomes stronger and becomes more pleasurable. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of games and a lot of VR in particular, because VR is a very isolating experience, is this sense that I am somewhere else and I can be justified in believing I'm somewhere else. Um, by this community that exists, even if they're not with me right here, uh, like in Dragon Age, for example, which is a solo game, you can still later go on and meet other people who have in a very real way lived in Thetis uh, and do know these same NPCs that you do and have shared experiences with them. Uh, and that's the magic that I think people are really after when they talk about immersion. I don't think it's just 
being really interested in a task or being surrounded by a VR screen. It's this thing that kind of defies definition. And I, I'm, I come from a theater background and theater talks about magic a lot. And that's sort of why I think there's some legitimacy to this because there's a lot of stuff in theater that is just sort of like accepted as being part of this like communal experience of uh, communal experience magic of, of being in in a theater space and watching something happen where we all know it's not real but somehow we all kind of agree that it that it is and <laughs> i'm i'm trying to bring this same attitude to bear on uh interactive design which uh, if you'll forgive me i i find tends to be like rather cold and analytical but i think there's right. space for a more um a more I don't know what the word is here. Like non-serious, soulful, artistic. Yeah, like almost generative approach to to this kind of thing. And this is why I'm working on this framework because I think that immersion is not going away. Uh, And I think that if we can really lock down what people are after when they talk about immersion, uh, then we can start to actually design for it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's... This, This is... See, that's amazing, and it feels like, well, I was going to say, it feels like somebody should be, like, approaching this, and, well, and you are, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is just, it feels, like, so logical in a way. Like, when you make the kind of the connection to theater, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. It feels like the next logical extension of... Absolutely. So, like, imagine a, once we have the technology for this, imagine, like, uh, everybody or like your party meeting up in a real space, your buddy who's not available or is like across the world, his avatar is there augmented with you and you interact with game elements that are overlaid on a real space there with you. Like the, the expressive potential of AR and VR to realize this, this like transportative immersive experience is unparalleled. We're not there yet. And I think we're not having the conversations uh, at a scale that will lead to the kind of like really high uh, production design uh, experiences that will really make this like a mainstream thing. But I think it's coming. Um, and so I'm, I'm just trying to like massage out both the conversation around it and also uh, like the methodology, because as much as, as much as you can have these like big artistic con- conversations about like soul and magic, you still have to actually like lay out a framework for designing for it. So that's the work I'm doing right now. Wow. Interesting. For some reason, talking about this, my mind kind of like naturally, we're talking about immersive design, I guess. And my mind kind of naturally wandered to um, like escape rooms. (laughs) Have you ever done escape rooms? That's that's where I came of age. I went from theater to escape room design. And from escape room design, I kind of like got into the design world. And that's when I discovered like VR. Oh, amazing. Yeah. See, that's. You know, my brother, my brother and I were like looking at um, starting a, an escape room here in our city in Oregon, and um, unfortunately, like while we were um, working on things, like three others opened up like at the same time. I was like, okay, well, there goes that <laughs> opportunity. But, and then you know, they're really good. That's the thing. Like the fact that escape rooms came out of nowhere and became huge is I think a sign that people want this kind of experience. People want to be yeah. transported. People want to like do something with a group of people that has some structure and some rules so that they know there's a limit to it, but there's a bit more space for expression and, and shared experience and like immersion. Well, and to your point, the community aspect of escape rooms, like doing one by yourself, 
Um, Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe but you get your friends horror. in there. I don't know. Yeah. You, you get your friends in there, and then there's like a leaderboard. Um, and there's absolutely you know, there's that whole kind of angle to it. And in a way, I always thought of I kind of approach escape rooms much like in my mind. It's like oh, the hollow deck on the Enterprise. Like here we are. Um, you know, I'm 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 you know Commander Data now solving a Sherlock mystery or whatever it is. You know, like. Um, but well, it's kind of interesting. Is, and go ahead. So the holodeck's kind of the holy grail of this. There's a book. Yeah. If, if, <laughs> yeah. if you if you read um, Hamlet on the Holodeck by Janet Murray, uh, that's sort of like the the handbook that I don't know that it really started the conversation around narrative design, but it it is something that uh, as uh, like any narrative designer should take a look at. Um, that's great. It, yeah. yeah, a lot of the germs of this research started with that book, and there's a lot. Even if you're not interested in like immersive uh, design, there's a lot of insights you can take from it just for conventional uh, interactive narratology, if you like. But yeah, it's sort of the the holy grail of this kind of research is like a system that will react seamlessly to any user input. Uh, and right now we're limited by, you know, in, in Star Trek, they have such massive computational power that it's not a problem, but we are very, very limited. And that's what you bump up against in VR. You can only design for a certain number of, of actions. But imagine if you get to a place where any action can generate a, like a, an effective um, verisimilitudinous reaction to it. That, that's sort of the holy grail of this of this design. But I think the way we get there without the technology is we use people. We like that. That was my, um, my thesis, uh, project was essentially a holodeck, but with some, with people to, to fill in the gaps. I built a, uh, an AR rig using a Vive, uh, a leap motion for hand tracking and a stereoscopic camera for AR. Uh, and I basically augmented, uh, a room with with various AR interactions, and then I put an actor in the room to kind of add this other like the actor can react to whatever the user does to the the augmentations, but also justify any choice they make that doesn't fit or generates an odd response from the system, oh, which I, I think really clever kind of bypasses the immersion. Like like I don't know, you know when you encounter a yeah, bug it's like a safety in net. a game. Sorry. It's like a safety net for, like, yeah, for your fringe case sort of uh, programming scenarios, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And it also uh, helped that I'm not, like, a computer scientist. So anytime I couldn't, like, figure out or uh, fix something in time, I was able to be like, all right, this is now the actor's job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's great, though. That's, like, really yeah. clever, actually. Well, yeah, that's kind of interesting, too, because it seems like you're specializing in immersion rather than you know, specific implementations of immersion. And it does seem kind of in hindsight that VR inherently has some immersion breaking uh, limitations. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm thinking now about, and people have talked about this, like the mask that you have to wear is bulky, whatever that in itself is immersion breaking. Cause you know that it's, you know, the thing that's, putting you into this other world and you since it's physically touching you you're like always aware of it um just a, a sidebar one of the best vr design decisions i've ever seen is in super hot vr to like start the game you have to put on a headset in the vr 
which oh, I thought was yeah. brilliant because it justifies nice. the the rig you're wearing in in this fiction anyway. So I think there's a That's way really to design funny. around that. But yeah, uh, you're right. It's immersion breaking unless you address it. Yeah. Not to mention it's yeah, like that's really interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that before. Well, and I I've, I've been thinking while while you've been talking about this too how I'm thinking more about immersion itself. Lately I've been playing Pillars of Eternity. Oh, and yeah. uh when I first started playing Pillars of Eternity, I was kind of bored. Um and I saw these walls of text yeah. just being presented to me and I didn't want to read them. Um but you know, when I finally put myself into reading the text and everything, it was much more immersive and I found it much more rewarding than something like, you know, a VR experience because it's this kind of surface level experience um, where you can, like you said, you can kind of easily break it. Um, but a lot of that I feel like has to do with the fact that, um, VR in itself, people think of it as an immersive experience. Um, and I guess, like you said, it's sort of easy to break because everything that's immersive about it is like directly presented to you. Yeah. Whereas this- like the immersion in Pillars of Eternity happens within myself almost like it's yeah. in my mind and absolutely um and this well, is why in order about, to like, design for it we have to change the conversation we can't just say immersion every time we're talking about this which is why i'm proposing right. engrossment uh like vr yeah. is an engrossing experience uh and you had a better time with pillars of eternity once you were doing both engrossment by form and engrossment by transportation at the same time yeah exactly right? so yeah it's it's going to be a long, and I might even like <laughs> propose that we stop using the term immersion altogether when we're designing for it because it's just too fraught. But I do think that this is like a step toward being able to effectively understand what's happening when we're engaging with these kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dang. Yeah, I like this uh, academic discussion of it because you know, like I've just so thus far just been like. You know, Ooh, shiny. Yeah, <laughs> this is uh, Nick. Yeah, you, you, you can pat yourself on the back because this is easily the most academic conversation we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great, uh, though, because it's like yeah. we, me, Taylor, and I. It's like we look at talking about design a lot more on the show, but it's such like a. It, it's a topic like fraught with so many like pitfalls if you don't really know what you're talking about, and so we really kind of avoid like really deep diving into design in general. Well, it's like we don't necessarily know the vocabulary either. Right. You know, it's like yeah. we we can talk about what makes a good tutorial for a game, but if you don't really know what you're talking about, you just start saying what you don't like basically. Right. You know. And it's mm-hmm. and that's what it boils down to is our conversations about it are just so um subjective to you know, our own tastes and like what we've seen done. Yeah. Um, we're not we're not trying to break ground on <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, any sort of design elements or anything like that. We're just like talking about what's been done, what we like, and what we don't. Yeah, but there's nothing um, wrong with that. That's that's what you might call a context review. That's uh, taking a look at what's out there and deciding what to take and what to keep. And you don't have to get all academic about about design and about your choices in order to to make something that's good and fun. It's just that. 
this vocabulary emerged because it's big business now. And in order right. to effectively yeah. communicate this to like a massive company, you have to standardize the language. Right. But I mean, your, I, your, uh, your, po- your podcast is pitched at indie devs, right? So yeah. I would say a lot of, a lot of listeners can just pitch all this stuff out the window, keep what you like and then ignore the rest <laughs> and, and you'll do fine. Oh, I think people are really going to enjoy hearing this though, because it, I mean, so. it's just it's just an interesting way of yeah yeah. It's just an interesting way of uh, of I think thinking about it and viewing it. And like one thing that you said, uh, I think is going to kind of stick with me. It's like you know you said you propose tossing the word immersive out the window, and that's one thing that we don't really think about all that often. Is that like often words become loaded in their own way, like through their own kind of history. And it's something oh, that yeah. we kind of see a lot in, I guess know for lack of a better term like political correctness it's like we see words evolving and people adopting different words because one's been co-opted in a negative way or whatever well in this instance the word's just been loaded down with you know its own history and it's kind of it has such a broad meaning to so many different people that it's almost become useless exactly it's not useful when you need to be talking about these these very different very granular experiences these like and experience is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Like it, it yeah, yeah. Is, when it's no longer useful, you have to invent something new, and it's frustrating because I'm spending a lot of my energy, like inventing a new little language when <laughs> yeah. I really want to be like making stuff. <laughs> I really want to be making these experiences, but I feel like in order to articulate them, and also in order to be like taken seriously, that's another thing that that's uh, irking me is that like I. I've made immersive things. Like I come from immersive theater. Uh, I've made you know AR VR experiences. I've made uh, the the thing I talked about where I augmented the space. But I feel like until I'm able to like justify myself, no one's going to take me. No one's going to notice what I've been doing. No one's going to notice the work that that it's taken, and no one's going to notice that like I. <laughs> the way people have been talking about this kind of thing is wrong. And there's a demand for it that the way people have been designing for isn't meeting. So let's meet that demand. Let's, and if that means coming up with a framework, a language to do it, then fine. I'll put in that work. But I'd rather be, be doing the fun stuff. I'd rather be making the experience. So do you feel like you're sort of prevented from tackling, you know, VR, AR projects because like the framework itself, like the academic, I don't know, building blocks of it or yeah, yeah, is, is kind of going the wrong direction. So you you kind of feel like No, it's not that. It's that, um, it's like a documentation. It's like, uh, it's like I'm writing a low level coding language from scratch because the documentation doesn't exist for this framework yet. Like if I want to make a VR experience, like I, I mocked up the, the bow and arrow from, uh, from, um, the lab for practice. I, Uh I was able to make that experience just by like looking at documentation and pulling code that existed and making a few tweaks. Right. So Uh that wasn't difficult but making essentially from scratch this like immersive experience in the way that i'm talking about is pulling together 
practices from theater, like uh, from script writing, from film, because you have to also keep in conventions that people understand. Uh, and, not, and there's, you know, um, hacking together the technology to do it. Um, there's so it's such a nascent technology that not enough is really there yet to really just hit the ground running. Like if I want to make uh, an indie game, uh, I can like go to glitch, pull some code and like start working or, you know, I can pull stuff from the unity store. I don't need to know a ton of the, like, I don't, I don't need to do a ton of that. That, that work's done for me uh, because of the community that exists. And that's great. But, um, a lot of the work that I see needs to happen is not done because I don't think people are aware yet that it needs to happen. I don't think the language is there for people to have these conversations about it. So I feel like I need to invent that language in order to get people who are better at, at computer science than I am <laughs> to make the kind of yeah. uh, like to make the kind of, of code and documentation and practices that I need to really make the the experiences that I want. Um, so, it's, you know, it's just like, it's a little exhausting, right? Like I have to, I don't know. I, I don't want to turn this into a, a weird academic pity party. So let's, let's put the brakes yeah. on this, on this tack of conversation. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I was just curious where your, where your mind space is, you know, cause not something I've really thought, thought about until today. No, but, yeah, uh, me neither. You clearly like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay busy right like we're we're in covid yeah. so i have a sort of a bunch of threads i'm pulling i have this academic thread where i'm trying to invent this framework uh and i'm giving this talk on it so I, I know there's some legitimacy to it some people are interested and i'm also working on you know on my projects i have a few things on the boiler i have some grants coming and i'm also like practicing my actual code like i'm i'm building VR experiences just to get practice with VR. I'm not interested really in making VR games. I'm not interested in working for, uh, I don't know, Ubisoft or, or whatever doing like making, making VR toys. But I do know that there needs to be some, uh, I I need to have the skills with what exists in order to make something new out of it. So I'm just trying to like keep everything together, give everything it's, it's proper attention uh yeah and, and go from there see what's happening see well, what comes from that so before we started the podcast Rhett sent me your uh your website and i just poked around at it a little bit and it was um a little refreshing honestly seeing some of the projects you've worked on because um and it reminded me a lot of my undergrad study which i majored in film studies um and i did an experimental film for my thesis and at that time my headspace was all about I don't know, just like what you could do with the medium of film um, and paying attention to like patterns and stuff that people could intentionally or unintentionally make through film. And seeing some of your work kind of reminded me of that. Like um, I thought especially this, the mind painter uh, project (laughs) that you did was like insane. So I don't know if you want to just talk a little bit about some of your the projects you've oh, done. Oh, sure, yeah. So, I mean, the I Mind Painter. Would... Yeah. Uh, so, Mind Painter is um, I, I use a, a NeuroSky Mind Wave, which is this little doohickey that sits on your forehead, 
and uh, it claims to take your brainwave readings. I'm skeptical as to whether or not it's actually doing that, but it's definitely getting some kind of output from from your head, uh, and it trans yeah. translates that into well into output into numbers, which you can then take and do stuff with. And there, are, it comes loaded with a few games and a few experiences there's like a meditation app and there's a game where uh if you focus your little guy will jump and if you blink the colors will change things like that uh so i uh i took this and i broke it open and i got the the outputs and uh, i said well i'm interested in like seeing inside so i wrote i used um the algorithm that makes a spirograph uh, and i plugged the numbers from the mind wave into that and so it generates these crazy uh abstract what's the word for like a repeating pattern it's a uh oh, uh, oh my god i i'm blanking on it too uh, yeah fractal. Oh, fractal it generates these these yeah. crazy uh psychedelic fractals uh every few seconds it takes a new reading and it generates a new one and you can you can print them and uh things like that and also because i wanted to play with doing something useful with it i i made a version that uh tracks your focus to be like a meditation app so the the more focused you are the sort of more narrow the the painting becomes uh, oh wow yeah see that's so, really cool i <laughs> i feel like there's a business idea in there somewhere like selling prints or something you know well, <laughs> that's the thing like the the mind wave is a product just like vr i think where you can make some interesting toys and you can do uh like a an intervention in a conference where you you do sort of like a cool little thing where you show it off and you walk away with a print and you go man that was cool but what excuse me what are you actually going to do with this technology what are you actually going to do with this as a product you're not like i right. have ever since i like i bought the the mindwave headset to do this project and it's been sitting in a box somewhere since then because it's not useful yeah. to me as a tool uh it was useful to me as like an experiment in what what grabbing outputs could do uh yeah. and learning processing but it it was if only you could then read and understand what those pictures mean exactly tell people about their souls or something exactly and i mean like you know you you could expand that into an immersive experience you know you could ha have a rig where they're wearing the mind wave and like a uh, I don't know, maybe a VR. I don't know. You could you could do something where the room responds to their emotions or something like that as they move around the room or touch stuff. But uh, oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. But like at, again, that would be something where you go to it. It's it's like a show or it's like a uh, uh, something in a in a theme park. But how do we uh, account for that kind of thing in in a post COVID world when you're not going to want to like? We're not going to ask everyone to buy their own MindWave headset. Maybe if, right. the, if the technology becomes cheap enough that like you can make them disposable, then maybe. But we're in this weird stage now where you were talking about like uh, in your your uh, thesis, like you were exploring what film could do. We're at this stage in VR and AR where we we can get away with that, where we can get away with like making projects just to see what it can do. Uh, but what does that coalesce into? That's that's what's right. so interesting, and that's what's so exciting about working in VR and AR right now is that it could become anything, so we can do anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great outlook on it. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a good uh, thought because you know when I was when I was doing experimental film, it was kind of like 
you'd find interesting things, but like, what's the next step? It's like, oh, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? And film, film is weird because it's now so well established that there yeah. is little that hasn't been done, or you really have to right. work hard to justify yourself if you do find something new. Totally. Like, there's a very distinct language of film that exists, and people will see if you're not speaking that language. But we're still in this place where, like, VR, the language is starting to solidify. I think that's why they were able to make a game like Half-Life Alex because there's enough of a of a language and enough literacy in VR that you can give someone that product and they can put it on and just start playing. But, like, you know, you give Half-Life Alex to, you know, to my my partner or my dad and they're going to be baffled, right? Like, this is another... We're going to get back into VR bashing where, like, I have... <laughs> I, I originally started researching VR basically because I was so critical of it. Uh, I, I was like, man... <laughs> It's isolating, it's immersion breaking, there's so much games literacy required. Like it pitches itself as this form that anybody can pick up and play. But the fact is, if you aren't used to navigating in 3D space and if you don't have a familiarity with what a controller is and how it works, you're not gonna be comfortable in it. You're not gonna know what to do. Like it, it assumes that you're a gamer, basically. And initially yeah, anyway, yeah. there wasn't much there wasn't much happening in it for non-gamers there wasn't much except for like the vr films which i argue might as like a lot of those might as well just be films i have yet to see except for actually the one i mentioned Beatabon, i have yet to see a vr film that wouldn't have been better off as just like a film because it uses they they use that language of film i was talking about and also they tend to have one focal point at any one time like when you're in a vr movie oftentimes there's a place they want you to look and oh, right. if you're looking away you miss it. Yeah, you miss. Exactly. So why yeah. am I in VR? Like, use VR. If you're going to be making something that's surrounding me, use the surroundings. Make it so, like, things are always happening and I have to pick where to look and I will miss something and that's part of the experience. Mm. You know, that's that's what I want to see, but that isn't what's happening. And I think part of that is because it, it if it's a product, you have to be able to sell it. So it has to be familiar. You can't just, like, baffle people or, or make them think they're missing something. Um, so there's, you know, we're at this point where, uh, we can't really, um, innovate in the mainstream because it's too risky to do that investment. And no one's really looking into the, the indie side of things like indie people. And this is maybe a broad thing that I maybe shouldn't say, or people will get mad at me, but I think a lot of indie work, uh, is, uh, mimicking the, uh, the conventions of the mainstream because they want to get noticed, right? They want to be familiar. They want to be exciting. They want people to go, oh, this is like this thing I know and that's how I will approach it. Or it's like breaking the rules in a new and interesting way. But very rarely, I think, do you encounter something that is uh, really uh, trying to renegotiate that language in a totally new way. And that's partially because now video games are well established enough that there's a language with them too. And so it's yeah. now a lot more work to break that language and people expect a certain thing when they sit down to a game. Uh, so if you're doing something that isn't uh, part of that convention, uh, like I, I played the original Deus Ex uh, recently and I was so surprised uh, to encounter like a keyboard mouse setup that didn't use uh, WASD 
in a way that I was familiar <laughs> with. And I realized that it, it predates Half-Life. And Half-Life was the game that set those conventions, right? Like you have to, in Deus Ex, you have to like press C to crouch or something. And I was like, oh, it's not, it's not control. Like obviously you can remap the keys, but I was just like taken yeah. aback that Half-Life set these conventions. And ever since then, that's pretty much been standard. And like the right. way the, you know, the, the inventory worked in a, in a way that I wasn't used to. Like the, that's a game from early enough in, in gaming that the language wasn't established yet. And now we're at this place where, the language is there. You have to work really hard to justify yourself if you want to break that language. But in VR and AR, and I'm hoping in immersive design, that language is still being established and we can we can write new rules. Yeah, we can sort of set the tone ahead of time. Exactly. Because, yeah, I think every medium it's that way. Like, you, you, we're talking about film, we're talking about games. Like, music is the same exact way, too. Like Totally. Um, literature is that way. Like, you know, we open up the first page of a book and we assume that it makes all these promises and it's going to deliver on those promises by the time the book's over. Um, and music's the same way. Like, you generally kind of know what the song is going to be about within, like, the first 30 seconds, you know? Yep. Um, and, like, anybody trying to break the mold, most people listen to it and they're like, eh, take me back to the top 40s, you know? Um, right. Well, I think, I don't know. That's why there is a, a thing like mainstream is a thing yeah. you know people kind of find what they know know what they like well and, and i like this that you know i like this conversation about the language and the vocabulary because it's something that taylor and i talk about all the time especially early on when we started this podcast it's like part of the learning curve of getting into game development was learning the vocabulary the common vocabulary that everybody has and you know the same thing is true in music it's like you are working with a particular group and you learn the language and the common, you know, vernacular and slang that people are using and you are kind of, I don't know, put into a track that way. You figure out, okay, this is where we're at now. It, like all the words are kind of like a barometer, I guess, for like orienting yourself in a new sort of field. So like, I guess having a, having a chance to take a stab at like redefining terms and establishing a new vocabulary or language for like an emerging medium is like pretty interesting. It's something I've never thought about because every medium I work in is not emerging. <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, yeah. And that's what's so exciting and so frustrating about working in VR right now because I can see what it could be, but the technology and the realities of like what does what a product has to be are i think keeping it back right and that's yeah you know it's limited by like people's sort of perception of what it already is too you know to an extent um, exactly and i mean to some extent i think applying the language of game design to vr is not the right move or at least like right. if it needs to develop its own distinct vocabulary yeah it can be um inspired by game development certainly like film was inspired by photography before that there's a ton of photography terms in film and that's just how it works but i think that thinking of vr in the same framework you would think of uh, a conventional game development in is not conducive to the best uh the best outputs that that vr can give you right 
No, and that's and that's an interesting way. And there's so many other established fields where we recognize that even subtle distinctions between, you know, between you know, like where my mind is going is like, um, you know, I, I was working at a music studio for a while, and there was a huge difference between studio mixing and engineering and live sound mixing and engineering. It's a huge distinction. In fact, like they're pretty much two different fields. Um, and I was, you know, I, I didn't quite realize this until I was trying to ask one of my friends who's a live sound engineer, like, Hey man, you should, uh, you should do this for me in the studio. And he's like, Oh, I would have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> he, he wanted nothing to do with it. And even though it's similar enough, most people that are in it, there's, there's enough distinction to know, like you don't really think about them in the same way because you're accounting for such vastly different things. One is in a controlled space. The other's not, you know, um, and so I kind of I can kind of see like VR and AR sort of forking and branching into like distinct um, sort of practices where sure you have your game design and things like that, but then you have this other thing, and then you have this other thing, and then you have you know whatever. I I'm not even imaginative enough to think of what the other branches could be, but um, <laughs> but I think you're touching on them a lot with some of these like experimental things that you have in your uh, on your website and some of the things you've talked about here. It's like um, having like an uh, an immersive like theater type AR experience is not going to draw on the same experiences or skill set or even you know way of thinking as a game designer is going to be thinking. Um, That's right. You can take practices from game design, and I have, sure. and it's been good. But you need to develop your own vocabulary and your frameworks for it. And I think that's going to happen for for VR and certainly for AR. Like AR is absolutely its own beast already. Uh, and I'm I'm sort of betting the farm on this idea that immersive design will also become its own field because I think you can have a game that's immersive. You can have a VR thing that's immersive, an AR thing. You can have a non-technological thing that is immersive, but they all share certain features and you have to learn how to design for that. So I'm sort of putting my eggs in the basket that that's going to become a thing and I want to kind of be one of the leaders in, in whatever that turns into. Because I think, like, I'm not saying I'm the only one doing this thinking. I'm the only one doing this work. And and people have been talking about dancing around this phenomenon in games, in film, in books forever. And what I've done, uh, what that I think is is relatively uh, new, is I've found the common threads that are dangling in each of those. And I've found the overlaps and said, okay, there's something in common here. There's something that all of these different media can generate so let's find a way to design for that specific thing that's the thing that i think i'm the first person to do but i don't want to make that claim yet <laughs> oh that's uh <laughs> that's yeah. really awesome nice well um i feel like we're kind of wrapping up here uh how do you feel like your talk went <laughs> yeah are you prepared for tomorrow <laughs> Oh God! Um, I mean, I could talk about it forever. The problem is, I have to make the the slideshow, and that's what I'm uh, I'm terrified of. I have to like figure out the flow, and you have to and... make it immersive, right? Exactly. Oh God, yeah. this is what I should do. Oh, I should no. make it like a scavenger hunt, and just be like, "All right, go off and learn on your own." Uh, no, this has been this has been the first time I've really been able to to have a conversation about it and to like uh, have to justify 
myself. And uh, I'm really glad for the chance to do it. Uh, and this has been certainly very helpful for me, and I hope it's been interesting for you and for your listeners. Yeah, no, this is yeah. great. You know, it it's funny because yeah, I've been listening to your podcast for years now, and uh, yeah, I had no like I, I remember you know there was a time where you were kind of running a little bit of like a bumper or something, and you would say, "Hey, if you're in the Toronto area, I'm running this um, you know immersive theater experience or something along those lines." And I was like, "Oh, that's cool," you know. Nick strikes me as a as a theater guy, and that's all I thought about it. And and when we talked about it after um, I was chatting with you guys on Page of the Wind, it's like, oh man, that sounds like it would be really awesome to to talk about. So I'm glad that like we kind of orchestrated that because I would have, you know, I had no idea. Um, I had no idea that you were so uh, engrossed in this world. Um, well, uh, and, it, and it's kind of interesting until I had the chance to open my mouth about it. So <laughs> I, I, I was planning to have more of a conversation. I feel like I just ran my mouth, but I, I hope it was. Uh, no, this is right. great. It, and it's, <laughs> I, 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 like I, I said earlier, it's like I was just riveted by so many of this stuff because it's things that I would have never. I, I think it's things that are kind of like in the fringe of my like perception of, of this world. But like, but. I don't think about it in any real certain terms either, you know? So it's kind of, it's yeah. been really riveting to just have, well, especially like, you know, you're so knowledgeable about it and you've obviously put a lot of thought into it and you're also well-spoken and articulate. So, Oh, thank um. you. Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about it. If, if your listeners are interested, uh, you can get in touch with me at uh, Nick at Nick Alexander.ca uh, and you can, Check out, I guess, my portfolio if you want to hear a bit of see what we were talking about, uh, which is at nickalexander.ca. And uh, can I plug my podcast also? Yeah, plug it. Plug it. everything, dude. Just go for it. <laughs> this is All your right, show. Everything. You're the boss. Here comes everything. <laughs> um, Rhett alluded to this. I have a podcast called Page of the Wind. We read uh, the Kingkiller Chronicle by Patrick Rothfuss one page at a time, and then we talk about it. It's a wonderful book. There's a lot to discover upon close reading. And uh, it's just a grand old time. So if you know the book or don't, you should check out Page of the Wind. And finally, uh, I'm giving a talk at Isaiah, the International Symposium of Electronic Art, uh, on this very subject in October. I don't know exactly when my talk will be. It will be virtual. Uh, so if you're attending Isaiah or if you uh, are interested in what they have to offer... You should check out Isaiah and you should come to my talk. Although, to be fair, you've probably heard most of the, the salient points already. So maybe don't. But uh, it's it's a thing. I'll be doing it. And I'm very excited. So real quick, Nick, uh, I pulled up Page of the Wind earlier today. And I wanted to start from page one of... Um, What's the first book? Uh, Name of the Wind. Are you kidding me? Name of the Wind. I know. Sorry. <laughs> Bro, it, are we it only friends? Sounds, it only sounds slightly different from Page of the Wind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> but my podcast player started me on like page 550 do you know oh, yeah uh, that that's you... an rss issue and sadly i don't think we can fix it without migrating away from soundcloud uh which is uh, our host okay. so if you want to listen to the very first episode uh go to soundcloud.com slash page of the wind or i think on twitter Sweet. our pinned our pinned um tweet is a link to the first episode also so okay uh, but nice. also that's taylor your podcast player yeah. sucks because i'm looking at mine and it has episode one so 
Is that because you've listened to it already? Well, no. I'm just like looking at the history? feed here. No, I just refreshed oh. it. Huh. Oh, what's your podcast player? I use Pod Kicker. Huh. I use Podcast Addict. Yeah, podcast Literally Addict every podcast of. app I've encountered has had the same RSS issues. So I'm going to start recommending Pod Kicker then because that that's awesome. It can yeah, it's a pretty ghetto oh, app, yeah. but it's just what I naturally started using when I got a smartphone. Um, or that you know that was an Android, um, and uh, it's pretty ghetto. But like you know, podcast addict that Taylor uses is just has all these like complex things. Like mine is just like okay, I basically um, subscribe to the RSS feed and I can refresh and I can see everything and I can download the episodes or I can stream them. It's great, um, super simple and easy. Um, but yeah, I recommend anybody who you know. I know a lot of people that listen like. Uh, Pat Rothfuss's books so go check out Page of the Wind because uh, it, it's really awesome I, I wanted to ask you if you if you guys have like a couple minutes still not, if you guys yeah, need sure. to run that's yeah. that's fine but um, you know are, uh, what other books do you think lend themselves to close reading the way that um, Kingkiller Chronicles do that's a great question a part of the reason it's so attractive to close read uh, Kingkiller is that the book has been so delayed yeah. Um so I would I would have said Game of Thrones prior to the show coming and going. There's, yeah. Game of Thrones is very yeah, meaty. That's true. Um, I think that, and I've I've mentioned these books on the podcast before, but I think that uh, Gideon the Ninth uh, and its sequel that just came out, Harrow the Ninth, are are really good for close reading because there's a lot uh, of clue. Their books are like clockwork. They're they're great. They they. Um, have a really great mystery and everything is well resolved except for the mysteries that are sort of the threads throughout the whole world. And those, there's a lot of interesting clues. Um, so I, I have been a fun time, uh, reading and rereading those books. And I'm also a big fan of, uh, the masquerade series by Seth Dickinson, who, by the way, uh, is, as I understand it, he's like the main force behind the lore of destiny. So if you're a fan of destiny, oh, wow. uh, uh, wow. you should check out, um, the Trader Baru Cormorant is the first one, uh, and oh. yeah, it I've has a lot in common with Kingkiller in that it's a tortured wonderkind who has a secret vendetta in a very well-researched and plausible um, fantasy world. Uh, so I'm I'm a big big fan of uh, Trader Baru Cormorant is the first one. Uh, the third one just came out. And I really liked it. I think your mileage may vary because it's it's uh, not an easy book to read. It's not like a swashbuckling adventure. It's about like the the trauma of colonization. Uh, let's put it that way. So it's <laughs> it's wow. It's a bit more of an investment, but there's a lot to parse from it, and I I think they're great. So if you want that kind of uh, story. Check out the Trader Bear Cormorant if you're interested in sort of a more lighthearted swashbuckle, swashbuckler uh, space fantasy that you can close read. Check out uh, Gideon the Ninth. Nice. Great rest. Cool. Um, yeah, well, okay. I feel pretty good about bringing this thing for landing, but Nick, I want to let you know that um, you're welcome back anytime. Um, you know, if you want to come back after your talk in October and let us know how it went or if there's anything that you learned uh, at the symposium that you want to share. You're more than welcome back. Just uh, hit me up. Oh, um, thank you. I'd be happy to. This was really we, fun. Yeah. We're we're a revolving door of recurring guests. So um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I'm totally happy to have you back. I, I learned a lot. And uh, I hope everybody listening uh, enjoyed this as well. 
Um, yeah, thank you. I, I I don't know if if there's talk on your Discord after the fact on your episodes, but I'm really interested in hearing what uh, your listeners have to think about what I oh, have yeah. to say as well. I'd just well, definitely you check guys, that out too. You guys listening? Uh, Nick wants to know what y'all thought, so make sure you do chime in on the Discord, and uh, maybe we can get a conversation going because I know a lot of people um, are pretty interested in VR. I know some people that listen. Um, have worked like is Doctor Argus like still working on VR stuff or did I make that uh, up, Taylor? He's he's doing a lot of AR stuff. AR stuff, um, that's right. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure exactly what, but he's always plugging away. Yeah, so uh, there's people that are definitely interested in. It. So how, let's have a conversation in the Discord, guys, and uh, and uh, see what else there is to be discussed. Um, but until then, if y'all want yeah. to, uh, if you're listening to this and you're not on the Discord, you can uh, join us there at bit.ly forward slash gdq discord um if you want to support the podcast uh financially a little bit you can do so while getting yourself some sweet swag over at humblebundle.com by following the link bit.ly gdq hyphen humble um and anything that you purchase within 24 hours of clicking that link uh a little a little slice of it can go to us but you can control it much the same way you can uh, your charitable donations there with the slider at the bottom so you can give us a penny you can give us more than that or whatever. Don't click the link if you don't want either. I don't care. But uh, any little bit does go a long way to supporting the podcast and keep the lights on around here. Um, and anything else that you guys might need, you can find at our website, gamedevsquest.com, your portal to everything GDQ-related. Um, you can see some of the projects that people have submitted for game jams. You can find our Twitter link there. You can find, uh, I don't know, links to the episodes if you if you ain't subscribed. Pictures of us. Pictures <laughs> of us looking handsome as hell. Looking yep. swag in Japan, um, but uh, yeah, I think that's everything. So Nick, thanks so much for coming on, and yeah. uh, thanks, thanks for having Nick. me. Appreciate it, man. And uh, best of luck on your talk. Um, yeah, we'll have Thank to you. we'll have to hear how it goes. Until then, everybody, this has been an episode of Game Does Quest for the week. Yeah, have a good week. Bye. Cute ad music. Bye. <laughs>